0: A mental thing that a lot of like young people, especially minorities, face is that they don't feel like they can attain or, or that they can be a part of that field. They are taught that and nobody's physically telling them you can only be this, this, and this. They're just seeing everywhere that because I look like this, I can only be this, this, and this. This is No Such Thing, a
1: podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser.
2: How are you man? i oh, good. <laughs> good. What
1: happened? This is Leroy. I haven't seen him in years, but we keep in touch online. Leroy is already headed to graduate school, but seven years ago, we got to know each other while he was a member of an advanced tech leadership program at my organization. He was only 16. All of these young people have that in common. At varying times in their past, they've come through Mouse's doors for one reason or another, Some because a sibling did, others because they thought the program held promise for building their resume. We learn more about the other reasons as we talk. So far, this podcast is setting out to cover youth and digital learning. For me, it comes after years of testing assumptions, applying theories and frameworks to learning experiences with youth, sometimes to realize what I learned in school or on the job was really helpful. And other times, I'd go looking for an idea or a practice, a theory about, for example, one thing that would universally engage the youth my teammates and I worked with, only to find out that there's no such thing. The show's about learning with technology, the realities and exciting potential, but it's also about youth and the practitioners who support them. Youth developers, museum educators, teachers, mentors, counselors, parents, as they grow their identity and journey forward. We're starting this series with an episode zero. In coming shows, I hope to cover more about games and learning, AR and VR, the web, and so much more as it relates to youth identity and digital environments. But first, I thought it was important to start by talking to young people who've been there. Most are very much still choosing their path, aren't we all? But
2: if the show is about young people at all, that's where I wanted to start. My name is Leroy, I was
0: born in Nairobi, Kenya, but I
2: reside in the Bronx.
3: My name is Sarah and I was born and raised in Queens, New York.
0: Uh, My name is Mikel, I was born in the Bronx and I somehow found my way back there after living in Queens for a few years. Tell you to stop. One, two, three. I can hear everyone, so that's awesome. Cool. <laughs> then...
1: So, what's the technology you can't
0: live without right now? Uh, I would definitely have to say uh, all my gaming consoles of any kind. Recently, I got the Switch in March, and I've been kind of holding on to it for quite a while. I think I have maybe. Three hundred hours on it so far, <laughs> something like that. Is there a way to log your hours on the Switch? I mean, they they log your hours for for specific games that you play, and on just one of them, I have two hundred and twenty. So, one game, one game, Zelda obviously, <laughs> but <laughs> but a handful of other games. What they was just, the game? Legend Zelda, uh, Breath of the Wild, latest one. I'm still playing it. They just came out with some new DLC. So right, right. It's about to hit three hundred on one game. <laughs> Sarah, how about you?
3: Um, I would definitely have to say my phone, just because you can do so much with it.
0: What do you spend the most
1: time doing on your phone?
3: Um, just, like, Instagram, Snapchat, those kinds of apps.
1: So social media? Yeah. Awesome. Leroy?
2: I think my laptop, my MacBook, because uh, I can do, like, uh, make my beats on there, Um I can type a letter if I need to uh without that with ease, but at the same time it also connects with the internet where you can you can have like uh, cl- the cloud services, so you can also have like uh what is it called a uh, uh, google docs Google mm-hmm. docs so uh I think the integration of the online presence within a device that is really not supposed to be uh with the internet like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. When you think about technology, um, do you think about it more as a work tool or as a as an entertainment tool?
0: I think there's no reason why I can't be both because I've always, like, throughout my entire life used it as both entertainment, I'm going to watch a movie, video, et cetera, and also I need to write this essay for class or I'm going to fail kind of thing. Right. So it's always been both. It's never been, like, one or the other. Right.
3: I think it's definitely a little more entertainment for me. Um, But also a lot of work gets done on it, just like Google Docs and, like, writing essays or, like, looking things up on the Internet. I mean, that's also a large part of it. But uh, for me, I would definitely say a lot more entertainment.
2: I think there's that battle between the two. And uh, right now, entertainment is trumping (laughs) uh, (laughs) work. Right. Um, And and it started really early when Facebook started out and people can stay away from Facebook. Right. And then they had a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, so I think this is an ongoing battle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so think back to uh, being younger than you are now, and, and tell us about uh, Sarah. Let's start with you. What was your first exposure to the digital world?
3: I remember getting like a family shared computer, and then having to like disconnect the telephone to in order to connect the internet, and that is I think my most recent memory. Of being exposed to the digital world, right? Um, and just like how slow the internet was, and how you'd have to wait like thirty minutes for like a video to load, right? So I think that's my earliest memory.
1: You remember that sound it made when it was connecting? Oh
0: God! <laughs> Please don't remind me of that horrible sound.
1: <laughs> <laughs> how about you, Leroy? What was your first first exposure?
2: Uh, my first exposure was when I got a compact computer. And Compact was, with a cube. Yes, oh, exactly. No. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Those good times. Nice. Uh, um, and uh, what I remember was just spending hours on paint and trying to draw things here and there, here and there. But there was no way to connect to the internet. Like, we, we didn't figure it out. So I think the most digital presence or digital uh, in, my, in my DNA was working with the applications within the computer. Right.
1: So, Mikael, your, your first experience?
0: I mean, I've been trying to pinpoint it. It's between uh, my father used to um, play uh, some games on a PlayStation 1 back at our old house on Grand Concourse. But uh, it's either that or um, at my grandmother's house, she, uh, she had an old NES, and she's letting me play uh, Contra and Duck Hunt on there. So you, you have a family of, of gamers? Debatable. They 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 will never claim to be gamers, but how can you not claim closet, when you have, yeah, when, you have a, <laughs> when you have three gaming consoles in your house and you when claim your grandmother had a game. when my grandmother owned an NES and an SNES and then oh, later bought my, my cousins N sixty four, but okay, it's whatever. If you know. your
1: if your grandma has a gaming console, you're a gaming fan. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, when you think about why tech is important to you three, what comes to mind?
2: I think it just makes life easier, you know? And I think that's <clears throat> the intended purpose of technology. Um, and it's not just for the disabled or for, you know... Well, that's, that's an obvious, mm-hmm. but just for the regular folk, um, just because uh, it started out with, with, with mail, a horse would go from town to town. Right. And now we have email, which is seconds. Right. So it's just making things easier for people.
1: You think life is easier with... with- the technology in your life? I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: What about you guys?
0: Oh, man, that's a given. I don't know. I feel like the true marker of progress for any civilization is how advanced and how much they use specific technology. So Mm -hmm. the... I think (laughs) the idea that uh, technology can be, like, a burden is, like, false. Mm. Because you might not be looking at it the way that you should be. It's, like... Technology is like a blessing that we have these people that are able to develop these things that are able to progress humanity to such a high place. Mm. So, yeah, so you man. think when when we're looking at it as a burden,
1: that's a that's a human.
0: Yeah, I think factor. it's I think it's a it's a gut reaction to certain things because anything can seem like a burden when you're not getting your way, you know. Right, but oh man, it's a blessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a true blessing.
3: Um, I definitely think it's been easier and I think like the most recent specific example for me would be um, my best friend and I were recently in Europe and my most used app was Google Maps Mm. Um, and I feel like that was honestly a lifesaver just like being able to just go on your phone and then just see where you are and like where you need to go and just figure it out in seconds as opposed to like you know back in the day when you had to like look at a map and like turn it around and like use a compass and like I think that's just um that for me I think was really helpful and like in terms of thinking of how technology can make your life easier I Mm. think that's one of the main examples whereas like I think things like social media sort of hinder human development a little bit um I would definitely say like those kinds of websites and things are just distractions I mean they're definitely like upsides but a lot of it is distraction yeah in my opinion.
1: Are there ways that you're using social media that aren't a distraction? Like, Do you think the connection, you mentioned earlier that that you're using a lot of stuff to connect with friends?
3: Yeah, I mean especially um, going into like my freshman year of college I found my roommate on Facebook and like just um, you know having this entire platform where everybody's like meeting each other and like sharing their experiences, sharing like, their fears of for college and things like that. I also think that's a positive way of using social media um, and not at all a hindrance, but mm. that's just, I don't know.
1: Yeah. So you, you three are unique and I you guys have these, um, you know, you've followed these paths um, with technology as a huge part of your life. And I think one of the things that educators do, <clears throat> that I'm not sure is is right or not anymore, but we, we tend to turn technology into a subject, right, and kind of remove it from the rest of, of life the way we do, uh, you know, social studies and science. And, you know, we kind of put it into a subject matter, and it's kind of separate. But but is that your experience, and, and do you think that that's the way educators should be approaching it, or, or does this stuff just belong everywhere, and, and is it just a, a part of life, um, not its own subject?
0: I think it's been a part of life for a long time, and I think that it's, it's about time that people are able to see that technology is quite literally everywhere, and that there's no... You can have a focus on it, yes, but I don't believe that it belongs in its own separate category, separate from what you may put as, like, a typical subject matter in schools. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not integrating it, then what are you doing? Like, it's 2017, you step your game up. The, there there was a time, perhaps, where you could have separated it from uh, a, a a regular school's curriculum, but I just feel like that's extremely outdated. Yeah. And that you're, you're you're miles behind if you're still working like that. You feel that way even for computer science? Especially for computer science. Especially for computer because science. Because there's... Everybody's trying to get into computer science because, you know, that's the marker of progress. That's where the money is. That's what uh, organizations are looking for, people who can do specific things within the vein. Because computer science is very broad. Um, so, out, and as well as outside of computer science. There needs to be an integration, not a separation. Right. I feel like it's just off.
3: Um, I kind of agree and disagree with that. Um, I think the technology is, like, it is integrated everywhere, and it should be, but also it's such a large subject area, and there's so much within technology that people don't know, um, and people wouldn't know how to approach how to learn it. Mm -hmm. So I think it is kind of important to have those technology classes, to have those computer science classes, just for people who aren't so familiar with it, especially... Um, I mean, my generation, I would say, is pretty well-versed in technology, but getting into, like, older generations, they're not as well-versed, and they wouldn't quite know how to approach it, so I think it, it should be a focus area in school, um, not, like, in the way where you, in elementary school, you would, like, sit there and just, like, work on scratch, but just, like, to learn more about how, what you can do with technology mm. and how you can approach your everyday life with it, because mm-hmm. not a lot of people are like know that.
1: Mm. What's interesting is that you three are all, in some respects, uh, Leroy. You're headed to graduate school mm-hmm. in a minute uh, <laughs> to continue to study technology as a subject, right? Right. right. Um, Sarah, you're you're in engineering school.
3: Uh, yeah, I'm going to be going to Rochester Institute of Technology.
1: Yeah. And, and Mikel, you study uh, technology and design. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so all three of you guys are kind of studying technology as a subject. So, so you're, you're, you know, it's interesting to think about um, your answer, Mikel, and, and think about, you know, if, if it's not it's a subject of its own, you know, what does higher education and, or, or K-12 education, what does high school education in technology look like?
0: That, that, what it looks like definitely differs from place to place. So from my my entire K twelve experience was in kindergarten. it was nothing. It was just, I don't think we had a, uh, what's the thing? You know, projector. Yeah. In, in uh, yeah. kindergarten, uh, one through five, we had the little the really old IMAX. We had a we had a a computer class in third grade. Which was just here's how you use basic Microsoft Word. Middle school, nothing. High school was when people started to actually pretend like it was a thing that we needed to be using after uh-huh. so many years of it just being there and being like, nah, that's a it's for entertainment. You're right. not supposed to be don't bring that into schools. When you say people were pretending, I mean like uh, teachers and the higher ups that were adults. Like adults, yeah. yeah, were pretending like it's it's a thing that's supposed to be separate from academia, which is like. So mind-bogglingly saying that you would think that that was a good idea, but uh, in high school was finally the time where it was like every every single student gets a laptop and you're supposed to be using this for educational purposes. And I still snuck in some entertainment here and there because it's possible and there shouldn't be a such a such a separation because right. there should be you know a balance or at least a some uh, discipline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. <sighs> computer science from those years is just you have to do it yourself because yeah. nobody's teaching you really yeah
2: yeah to, to rewind a little bit you know talking about uh, how you know computer science and computers is a subject and technology is a subject yeah um, technology is changing every day like really fast more than these other subjects are mm-hmm. so so it's, it's 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 they're kind of struggling to label it as a subject because they're they're learning new things about it, but those things might not be true the next day mm-hmm. um so it's it's a fine line between what's a subject and what's not right um, and for now, I think it should be a subject, yeah because it's subjects also change, but not as fast as technology
1: right so yeah, so just as soon as they get the like the course uh path set up right. in a whether it's a, an undergraduate or a high school level uh, set of requirements in computer science, it's like uh, by the second year, a bunch of stuff that you studied in the first year, there's no such thing as fill in the blank anymore. Exactly. So,
2: like, like for example, you know how I was talking about the compact computer? Yeah. The specs for that are so obsolete. Right. Yeah. So there's people who are learning that, and now they don't need It's like, what's, what's right. the point? Right. So
1: So you... you Mikhail, you men- mentioned this um, idea of discipline mm-hmm. and structure. And I'm curious for you guys particularly, because you're a group that, it, it I'll say benefited, but but um, I'm kind of applying my own bias there, from having access to digital experiences that were both in school and out of school in different ways. And I'm, I'm curious... What role did each of those environments play? Like, was was and and were any of them more important than others? Um, whether it was school or after school programs or um, or experiences you were having at home or uh, you know museums elsewhere. Uh, what were the really kind of formative experiences for you?
0: In terms of my experience with tech. Yeah. <sighs> Okay, so obviously, I started with gaming. That was the, the first thing that I was really introduced to and that really got me into it. I remember my mom bought me a GameCube when I was very young, and I like swore by that thing. But I never... The, there was a point where I was having a hard time recognizing how this box that I plug a controller into, that I plug into my TV, gives me this experience. And I wanted to understand how all of that worked. So mm-hmm. it really that's what sparked that first. Day. I thought like, wait. Whereas kind of you're a child and you're just experiencing. Mm-hmm. There's there's no questioning anything. You're just like, I had this thing, it's cool, I'm gonna keep utilizing it for my own purposes. But then it became a thing more of, I don't understand how any of this works in a, in a deeper sense. I know what the A button does, I don't know how to make an A button kind mm-hmm. of thing, you know? So it was at home, I would say. There was no at least nothing that I can remember at the time. No outside place where I'd have a real experience where I'd be like, oh, wow, this is a really cool piece of tech. Maybe if you went on a trip to, like... There was a couple of tips that are, like, the the uh, the Hall of Science in Queens. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the the closest thing to, like, an informative mm-hmm. experience that I had. But most of it was at home, whether it be... Well, I, it had to be online because there was nobody around me that yeah. had the answers, so I'd have to look online for that. Yeah. So...
1: And then how did, how did because I know you did, you've done programs at an amazing nonprofit here in New York called iBeam, um, who who do incredible work, and we'll we'll link to iBeam from the show notes, and um, you've done work here at Mouse, um, and then, you know, you've done some stuff at school. You, you were at a one-to-one school. So did each of those experiences have different roles in how, your perception of sort of what was possible with technology shifted as you
0: grew older. Oh, definitely. So, like I said, from let's let's say let's say from kindergarten all the way up until tenth grade, there was no place that informed me that I could be making this stuff or even inform me about how it was made. Mm-hmm. As I, like I said earlier, but in tenth grade, yes, um, uh, a representative from IBM came to my school and said, "Hey, we're down the block. We're doing." Uh, physical computing uh, we're making hand controllers it's uh, playable fashion come down, come check it out mm-hmm. and I was like, I kind of want to do it kind of lazy so I, <laughs> I kind of held it up for a while and finally went but when I finally did go and I picked the perfect day I showed up uh, like 10 minutes late and we were going on a trip to NYU Poly in, in Brooklyn and that was the most eye-opening experience I ever had up until that point where it was we took a, we took a trip down there and they have uh, a whole curriculum based on game design. Yeah. And I had never thought that possible, even though I had knew that I wanted to become a game designer, even though before I called it game programmer, which is like a separate thing, because mm. I didn't know. But now now that I've been exposed to this information and to this world, now I understand what it really means. Um, it was that trip, man. Yeah. <laughs> it was that trip, definitely. Being able to be around people that are within the field that know what they're talking about and that are non-biased is, like, the most wonderful thing you could ever experience for any specific field. When you say non-biased, what do you mean? Non-biased is meaning that they, they're they there to mentor us because it was a group of other mm-hmm. people that were uh, students in the program. And so they're trying not to push any type of agenda. They're just giving you the information. I see.
1: At IBEAM. Yeah. Yeah so that was that was different and so is school a biased environment because they have an agenda
0: biased because they have i feel like for for mouse and Ibeam, cuz those were the last like after school experiences that i had mm-hmm. that there's no teachers i feel like they're trying to fill a fill a quota mm. and that they're not there's no one-to-one with teachers at school, especially at least that's how I felt in high school. Whereas when I went to IBeam or when I went to Mouse, I could have a real conversation and ask real questions, and they could get back to me. I could email them. I could call them if I felt like I needed any more information. Whereas at, like, at my high school, it's just like, I see you for two hours in a day, mm. go to see somebody else, and then I go home, and I, we do this every day for a week, and there's no connection. Right. Um, and that plays a big part in uh even though it wasn't tech related, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Which is probably part of the reason why I didn't connect with them. But it was just the the vibe that I got was just not hmm. <laughs> comfortable.
1: That's really interesting to hear yeah. you put it put it that way, non-biased. Yeah. Um how about you guys?
2: Um <clears throat> to, to 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 go back a little bit, yeah. uh, I think uh Mikkel went uh pretty deep, um, but just to go back to the surface. Um, <clears throat> when you have different avenues, like uh, teachers, parents, uh, the Internet telling you how, what technology is, you kind of have different perspectives, mm. and you see it through their eyes. And I think it's, your, your job now is to, to, to digest it and take it how you take it. Mm. And there's, there's no real emphasis on how you should take it. They just feed you the information information. And then you take it on your own. Um, so I think the, the the important part about getting different avenues of of uh, of information mm. is you get different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So different those different experiences you had school, right after school right. were all different, different perspectives on
2: on how technology is impacting the world. Yeah, what, what it's worth. Is what, exactly.
1: How about you, Sarah? You guys both both had uh, Leroy and Sarah. I know you guys have some influence from siblings um, mm-hmm. who were into this stuff. I'm curious about at home. You know, to what degree was the exposure you were getting at school different from after school? Different from you know what you were also seeing from your siblings?
3: Uh, I think my my older brother is definitely one of the biggest influencers for me in terms of technology. Um, He was the one who really pushed me to go to mouse. Before that, I didn't have any interest in technology. Not that I didn't have any interest, but just, like, not in the way that he did. Um, He always, you know, took things further. He's, I would say, a very creative person, and so this program was kind of perfect for him, and he kind of just wanted me to experience that. Um, At home, he was always, you know, he was the older sibling. He was the one who was figuring things out, how to make things work, how to fix the internet, how to, um, and he always just took on that role because he had to. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents, they didn't know, they weren't from a generation of technology. They didn't know how to, you know, make the Wi-Fi work or Mm -hmm. things like that, or how to fix a phone. But he definitely took on that role and just made it his own and just stuck with that in high school and then now in college, um... So I definitely learned a lot from him. I picked up a lot from him. Um, he was the person I asked all my questions to, um, whether or not he wanted to help me all the time. is a different story, but he, you know, was definitely, like, willing and pushing me to learn about technology and just telling me, you know, there are not enough women in technology. Like, check out this program. Like, you might really like it. Um, and older so older brother
1: said this. <laughs> oh, he, he's not that much older. How much <laughs> older is he?
3: He's two years older. Two years. Yeah. But
1: that's a pretty mature thing for him to be like, you know.
3: Yeah. Notice was... uh,
1: a an, an equity problem, you know, at, uh, you know, that's gender based when he's he was seventeen years old or so.
3: Yeah. No. I mean, he when he was telling me about Mouse, he was like, there is an off balance ratio. There's no like almost no girls in the program, um, so I think you should really try for it. Yeah. Um, and so that I did, and uh, um, it, I think it definitely changed uh, the way I saw technology and pursuing it now in college. Um, it's not something I saw myself doing four or five years ago at yeah. all. I was on a totally different path, I think.
1: Yeah. After your time, when we started to shift significantly, the program that you're talking about, which is Design, Mouse's Design League program that will link to, um, that program's now about 40% um, young women, which when Leroy was a part of it, um, was, we, I'm sure, had years where it was 100% male. Right. Um, so that's changing. And, and um, what's really cool to hear is that. Your older brother was a big part of uh, encouraging you to go that way, um, and that his experience being in uh, a, a sort of male-dominated environment made him want to push you in that direction rather than steering you away from it. Right. That's a pretty awesome, awesome older brother, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. Um, so, did you guys feel when uh, coming back to something Mikkel said about? There was this shift in high school, right, where um, it seems like you were describing that adults in the room started to, they went from seeing the hardware and software that was at school from being entertainment to suddenly it was like, we need to do this. Um, By the time you guys were in high school, did you feel a pressure from adults that technology was about careers and you needed to do this stuff for to get jobs and go, like, go, you know, I'm doing air quotes, uh, go into technology?
2: <laughs> for, for, sorry. Uh, for, for me personally, it was more like parents uh-huh. who, who put that down on me. They were like, oh, uh, major in computer science, uh, do after school programs like mouse to, do the, to, to get more involved in technology, which will in turn turn into a career. And they kind of saw it as technology was like the booming industry. And they didn't want to, They didn't. They didn't want a kid uh, graduating from college, and not having a job, right? Um, or or just majoring in like uh, what is it called psychology? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no offense. <Yeah. laughs> and uh, and then just you know sitting at home. Yeah. But uh, it was it was more parents for me personally yeah. than than any, anybody else.
1: What's interesting is we'll come we'll come back in another. Show to talk about all the tech companies that are hiring psychologists now, but right? <laughs> but but I, I get what you I get what you mean for sure. Um, how about you?
3: Um, it's difficult to say. I don't think I really felt. I mean, my school, the school that I came from, had almost no options in terms of like math and science. We were such a liberal arts school. Um, I didn't feel any pressure in my high school to pursue technology just because um, all our higher level courses were in like English, history. Um, we stopped taking science after junior year. So mm. senior year, we didn't even have a science class. We um, we stopped taking technology in like the eighth grade. Mm. It was the seventh through 12th grade uh, school. So I mean, in my high school personally, it was very And it was very difficult to apply to schools that were math and science-based, technology-based because we didn't have any of the requirements to do it. Mm. Um, so I think for me, it was sort of the opposite. I was kind of just like working against the tide to end up at a technology school or end up at a math and science school just because we didn't have the resources. Um, and that was, I think, it was mainly me um, trying to do that, so... And it, it was just difficult, yeah. I think, all throughout high school. It was just, like, thinking, like, if I want to pursue this, I don't even know if I can get into a school because right. I don't have the requirements.
1: So how did that pan out?
3: Um, well, I mean...
1: Were you at a disadvantage?
3: I definitely think I was, and my brother was as well, you know, applying to, like, these schools that, you know, required physics classes or, techn- like, advanced technology classes. Um, so we definitely were at, dif- like, at disadvantages, but we sort of sought out opportunities on our own and Mouse helped us with that, like working in the summer and doing technology-based internships or that really built up our resume and sort of pushed for us, even though our classes didn't. Um, so it definitely is a lot of self-interest um, for my brother and I, I would say, because our school really didn't help us in any way.
1: Mm. So that's an interesting topic to to. Scratch on for for later um, shows for sure, but um, to think about how you know in New York and in other cities, you know, uh, students are applying to high schools as you guys did, um, and you're applying to a high school that has a a sort of curricular theme or a charter um, in a direction that might skew more STEM related or more humanities related. Um, It's interesting to think about what advantage or disadvantage that puts someone at, like you, who went to a humanities school and then uh, ended up applying to engineering school, and, and what role the informal programs played in helping you fill out the gaps. Um, because I think there's a perception that, you know, I don't know how your parents felt about it, but I think there's a perception that when you send your kid to a good high school regardless, um, that they, if they do well, they'll be able to apply anywhere they want to go and pursue anything. But I don't think that's uh, entirely the case when uh, students, as you said, are literally being kept, um, you know, you're not taking science past junior year. So a school that's requiring a certain number of years of science, you need either that from high school or you need equivalencies uh, from other programs. And then we need to figure out how colleges start to accept those equivalencies as being real right so that's kind of my my soapbox but um, that's a really fascinating uh, area Um, so let's pivot a little bit before we um, wrap up the interview because you guys have already taught me so much about what this show should be about and how many directions we have to go with some of this conversation. But, but let's take it a level um, deeper um, and talk a little bit about things like gender. We already talked a little bit about gender and technology. How about race? Um, what, what role do you guys think race and ethnicity plays in technology today?
2: It's, uh, it's clear that there's not a lot of you know, African-American, Latino... Latina females, males in this kind of business in this industry, and I don't have the answer <laughs> i 'm not sure why that that is, but maybe um, you know um, white privileged uh, individuals have more opportunities you know they they grow up in areas where schools have um, you know technology courses um, as opposed to uh, African-American, Latina, Latino. Latino uh, they go to schools that don't care about them at, you know, from the beginning. Don't care about the tech? They don't care about the tech or even just themselves as a person. The students. The, the, the development of, of, their, of their careers, whether it's in technology or something else. But in this case, technology.
1: Yeah, Is that what it felt like to you?
2: Um, I, I, I was privileged to go to a pretty good school. And, uh, and uh, I grew up in a nice neighborhood, Riverdale. Um so I was kind of blessed mm-hmm. in my sense. Mm-hmm. Um but not too many kids uh get to have that experience. But even to live in those communities, the the rent is very high, you know. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. Yeah. But you can't just point at one thing.
0: Yeah. Uh I I wanna agree with Lou Roy. I just wanna uh make a bit of a point that there is uh there is a a conversation needs to be had about privilege and uh, opportunity for like minorities in certain places but I think another factor that people they don't really want to talk about is that yes there's less opportunity for us but this there's a big a mental thing that a lot of like young people especially minorities is that they don't feel like they can attain or, or that they can be a part of that field. They are taught that nobody's physically telling them you can only be this, this, and this. They're just seeing everywhere that because I look like this, I can only be this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. So even if there was an opportunity for somebody who's uh, a black woman in the eighth grade that, hey, you can come do this extracurricular uh, computer science uh, thing, she might look at it and say, "That's that's not something that I can do. That's not something that I should be doing just because of things that people have things that she's seen and things that people have told her mm-hmm. in her life, a little more than the opportunity not being there. Mm-hmm. And so I just, like Leroy I said that like, there's multiple factors and it's not one thing that you can be pointing fingers at saying that. This is the reason why it isn't happening because there's many, many things going on and some of them are mental things.
1: So what was the moment for you where you
0: were like, you went into an environment and you said, like, this could be me? I had a lot of support from my family. So my mother, my father, my grandparents, my aunts, my cousins always told me that I was going to be successful and that I had to be successful and that they believed that I was going to be successful. And so I think, thanks to that, there was there were rarely times where I looked at something and said, "Nah, I can't do that. Mm. It's out of reach." Like that was never really a thing that crossed my mind. Especially, especially once I pinpointed that I wanted to do something with. I just know I want to do something with computers or something with gaming and through this that having that idea in my head and just the support that I have for my family there was never a time there was never a time where I was like nah I can't I can't do this program because like I said when I was approached uh, by Erica about iBeam it was more of damn, I'm just lazy. <laughs> damn, I, I really just want to go home and play my new system that I just got. But right. Right. I'm so, even to this day, I'm so, so happy that I was like, I'm just going to go. Yeah. Like, well, there's nothing to lose. Yeah. It's only I can only gain. Yes. Yeah.
3: So, yeah. so um, growing up, I had always been uh, going to schools where the majority of students were white. Um I being, you know, like a Hispanic Muslim like that always like stood out to, you know, people who didn't quite understand that. Um, And so growing up, especially when I was younger, it was kind of difficult to see, you know, the majority of my friends being white, like living in big houses, having all these sort of like different opportunities that I did. Um, And then going on to middle school, it was basically the same case. Um, and now college, which is almost going to be the same case as well. Um, So it's just sort of just living my whole life, being in the minority. um, It was sort of like a hindering mindset um, just because, and also being a female as well, just it was always sort of difficult to want to pursue something, and then thinking, you know, I don't really belong here or I feel different or I feel like I don't belong here Um, but also like my brother and I would always go to programs for um, minority students in STEM and so we would go to classes on Saturdays and it would just be a bunch of people that looked like us and were interested in the same things as us and sort of being pushed and empowered and feeling like there are opportunities out there you just have to look for them. Um, and there's just sort of like this, like Mikel said, like this mindset for most people that think, you know, um, I can't do this or this is just the life that's set out for me. I mean, I, you know, I don't have this fancy technology. I don't have this fancy, you know, background. I don't. But it that sort of just doesn't matter when your mindset is A lot stronger than that I Mm -hmm. think and just sort of pushing yourself to recognize that you're always going to be in a situation where you're at a disadvantage whether it's how you look whether it's how you know where you live where you come from people are always going to stigmatize you and just you know pushing past that I think is what kind of got I think all of us here Um, you know going through Programs like mouse, going to programs like STEM programs on the weekends, um, learning about subjects that I would never, you know, like neuroscience, things like that. Mm. Um, So it's just sort of...
1: Can you mention some of those programs, the weekend program?
3: Um, Columbia um, Mm S-Prep. It's the S-Prep program at the Columbia University. Yeah. Um, I also did one at Barnard. Mm -hmm. I think it was also like the STEP program. Yeah. So just like programs like that just really push, you know, the minority population to pursue careers in technology, science, yeah. math. Um, I think those are also really important programs, especially for those who, you know, feel like they're not getting enough of an education at the high school that they're at or the neighborhood that they're at.
1: Yeah. So what did it, What did that mean to you, coming back to what you said about um, Having experiences that were the opposite of what you were experiencing at school, where you were constantly the minority, going to a program where there were other young people of color who were also, uh, you know, trying to break the mold and trying to follow their passion, you know, what did it mean to be at a place that was uh, that flipped that and help you feel like you were just another? Uh, another kid in a program?
3: Um, It was definitely empowering, sort of, just, like, to be at a program that promoted so much diversity. Um, And it was sort of also just, like, a safe space that you can go to on the weekends, just, you know, having the same interests as these people and feeling like you aren't left out for any reason because of the way you look or because of, you know, where your family's from. I think that, that that has always been such a disadvantage for kids at school like you know everyone's just sort of going to stereotype and generalize and it's just having that safe space and just you know pushing yourself to learn something that you want to learn um without the stereotypes
1: yeah so um there's kind of a, a space I'm really curious about between these two things that we're talking about you mentioned earlier that iBeam. There was a moment where iBeam took you to um, NYU, Poly. Poly, and um, having that experience and Mouse does that too. And I always feel conflicted about. You know, we we take students all the time to places like Google and um, Microsoft wow. and other tech companies, uh, startups, software, hardware. Um, and oftentimes we're doing a workshop and our mission is very much about getting you guys engaged and excited about this space, but then we walk you into an environment that is a bunch of young white people and mostly male. And my conflict is always that I don't, I don't know whether we talk enough about what goes on uh, there and how you guys react to that and whether that's a good thing. Uh, or not a good thing? And how do we balance the need for environments, Sarah, the way that you described, where we're all just young people going after our interests, um, and making sure that you're exposed to a field and professionals that, like you said, are there in an unbiased way just to share their pathway and, and share what, what kind of got them there and what kind of, you know, what their, look, what their work looks like from day to day?
0: Um so do you guys have thoughts about that? I feel like there a part of me feels like you shouldn't you shouldn't try to shy away from bringing people into a place where they might feel uncomfortable because it i feel like it only adds to the to the problem so when when i when I took that trip to n y u poly and I got there, there were a lot of it was i want to say. Well, actually, and according to NYU's actual little uh, census that they put out, it's about 40% uh, 40 white people and another 30 or 35% Asian. And so when I walked in there, I I never really thought about uh, the race of the people that were there, mostly because I was just so like, these people have a game library. Like, I was so pinpointed on this. (laughs) It was like candy <laughs> like yeah, it yeah. everywhere. It was like... <laughs> and because I wasn't... I was at a point where that it had never bothered me, personally, personally, because I know there's a lot of people that get a little bit shaken up when they're at a place where they're, where they're physically out of place. Instantly, you can pick them out of a crowd. Um, and I don't think I saw any black people there. And that never really took away from my thought that I could still be in this place and I could still make something of myself in the same field that these people that are here but like I see where you're coming from Mm. but I just feel like as long as there is a conversation that has been had or a uh, not an agreement but just uh, something that is set in your mind when you walk into that space that this space is for this field and it's going to be this kind of people here that doesn't mean that just because you aren't like these people physically, because it's so irrelevant, that you can't be like them in this specific way. Like, there's a very cut-and-dry specific way that you can explain this to anybody. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like the end goal is to just do what you want to (laughs) do. And if you're bringing people into a space that is all about doing this specific thing, then the people themselves are irrelevant in the case of race that is
1: mm-hmm. so should should we have should we be doing more to preempt with that with having that sort of set up conversation or is the right thing to just go and react to it and see how it goes and
0: either debrief it or not? I think the conversation needs to be had first it, it can be just as simple as lo these people... You can even give, like, a... Uh, if you're going to take a trip to Google, you can just say... You can even give a little... I mean, people... Like, Google is obvious. People know what Google is already. But you give a little background of the company or just the space. Or, like I said, the type of people are going to be there. And just try to focus on uh, what's in point, which is, like, the subject matter, not the people. Now, there is a bit of a problem when it comes to race because especially in this country maybe not so deeply in new york but in this country in particular the problem with not having a nice spread out rainbow of people within your company is that Mm -hmm. there's an extreme lack of perspective because you're only seeing just these people coming from these places and they're all the same (laughs) basically um as long as you have that in mind you can still take something very good out of the experience though is what i feel
1: yeah Yeah. so when we when we get to the games episode (laughs) we'll come back to how the lack of equity at game design companies Mm. has influenced the prospect and impacted your experience as a player yes as uh you know somebody who is growing up with those games um i want to talk more about that sarah you were about to say something
3: yeah I think the scary thing is is that there there's no like right way to approach it um especially with young people um you don't know if you know there's no right way like you shouldn't it's not wrong to talk about it before and it's not wrong to talk about it afterwards um or you know it's just i think especially in like growing up and and like michkel said like in new york it we are so lucky to be growing up in a place where it is more diverse, especially I think in Queens. Um, it has been a very diverse experience, not always in school for me personally, but, you know, just in general. But I think especially for young people, um, it is more important to have these programs more so than going into the professional world just because once you're in the professional world, I feel it's more about the work that you do or it's more about, um, although there is, like, some, you know, racism in the pro- professional world of course definitely, all the time yeah. um i think it just stems from childhood and if you don't expose you know all it, not just people of minorities but also you know people who are privileged or white or i think that they they also just need to be informed as well growing yeah. up um because then that prevents the racism in the professional world that promotes You know, diversity in the professional world. So I think it all sort of stems when you're younger.
1: Yeah. So you don't feel as strongly that we should be doing more when when we're introducing those experiences where we're bringing you into professional environments. I think it needs to start earlier.
3: Yeah. I. I mean, I think that if I in elementary school felt more included, or if the people around me felt like I wasn't so different from them, then these Later experiences in the professional world wouldn't exist as much mm. as you know, growing up and feeling like everybody is going to grow up to do something, and it doesn't matter what. And you might end up, you know, in the same class, in the same job as someone that you went to elementary school with, and they were taught racism, and yeah. then they projected in the work world. So I think that that kind of needs to start earlier.
1: Mm-hmm. So when when you Think about digital culture and the ways that tech is influencing our culture right now. What worries you guys most about
2: the future? Technology just becoming the person, and what I mean by that is um, <clears throat> what what we do, like our jobs, uh, are taken over by a robot, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, so then we become obsolete. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, Yeah, I feel like I agree with that point just to—I mean, like, technology is a good thing, and it's sort of advancing every day, but also how far can it go is sort of scary. Just, like, you know, um, like, everyday jobs, like, automatic doors, now you don't need a doorman, and, like, people are just, you know, they're little jobs that keep people employed, and then just to get rid of it through technology is—I mean— in some ways can be seen as a good thing, but also a bad thing. It might be, you know, pushing people to to, be more involved in technology, but also people are losing jobs to technology, and mm. I think that's a very scary thing is just pushing technology too far, mm. especially, like, in the next 30, 40 years.
0: Yeah. How about you, Mikael? I'm just writing down so I don't forget anything I want to say because this is a, a pretty big thing. I had this conversation with my uncle a lot I had a realization a couple of years ago where my uncle told me he's he's kind of weird he watches a lot of World War II documentaries mm-hmm. for some reason he's really into that era and we were having a conversation and he brings up the fact that uh, this is it's basic science to me now but that scientists have kind of calculated that in order to end the entire planet indefinitely like all human life wiped out it would take four nukes no. Right? Pinpointing in the specific places, yeah, but it would take four.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There are like 5,000 active nuclear weapons mm-hmm. on the planet right now, right? So when I hear, and I don't want to... Because you bring up a good point about like people being taken over by technology... But I feel like you should be far more afraid of the people who control the technology than the technology itself. Because mm-hmm. the world can end right now, mm-hmm. in all honesty. So mm-hmm. being taken over by a robot sounds far better than that. <laughs> the world can end right now, in, 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 in 20 minutes. So I'm... Like I said, I think that the, a marker of a, of a civilization is how far they can progress their technology. And like there are people that are like... Uh, What's this man's name? Edward Snowden mm-hmm. and Elon Musk are two people that I've, I've researched very little. But they, I've read like some of their works, and they talk a bit about how, like for example, artificial intelligence, how we can, we can do it right. Like, the movies were a good thing because it brings up very good questions about how we can address certain things with artificial uh, uh, intelligence. intelligence. Um, an article came out the other day of a robot that was created in, I, I want to say Germany? Somewhere I can pull it up later. Mm-hmm. That's not the point point is, the we haven't perfected it yet. It was told to put out a fire. It put out the fire, and then it throws itself into the water to destroy itself. <laughs> and so it's like it feels like since its purpose has been fulfilled, right. then it then it serves no more purpose. Right. So, there's just is more progress that needs to be made, and that's why. Digital learning is so important because the more people that you get out there to try to figure out these things, the better it can become. But I say again, you have to be very, very, very careful who is put in charge of these technologies and of these things and of these, even the programs, because they can do very bad things with them. Like, end the world in 20 minutes. Like, it's not a, it's not a, there has to be a balance. There always has to be a balance.
1: If you had an opportunity to tell A lot of educators, the one thing that adults are getting very wrong about working with young people right now and trying to motivate young people right now to do the kinds of things that you guys are doing, what are we getting wrong and and what do you wish, um, what's your advice to them?
2: Well, I would say just to let someone dive in headfirst, all in, you know, because uh, with educators, they kind of take it step by step little bits by bits and sometimes we just don't have time for that or patience (laughs) Mm -hmm. so I think uh, just diving head first and letting us just swarming us with a lot of information at once Mm. um, at one time. More immersive Exactly
3: Um, I think a lot of adults and authority figures need to understand that not all students or kids are similar in the way that they learn and I feel like they shouldn't be so stuck to a curriculum um you know growing up and like it's different I would say and it gets better with age I think as you grow older but just young like when you're younger or you're in elementary school it's just such a like cut out curriculum it's so precise um And that doesn't work for everybody. And I think that that sort of just prevents students from excelling or doing their best because they can't fit a curriculum. I feel like it should just be a more fluid way of learning.
0: I think that one thing that uh, they've always been getting wrong is, like I've brought up before, is, like, separating this tech between entertainment and, like, actual purpose like productive purpose mm-hmm. and i've always brought up a part of the reason why i wanted to become a game designer was because i love playing games and then my parents and my people told me like stop playing games you're playing them too much it's like destroying your brain and they with tv it's like you shouldn't be doing it this much It's like but i also want to make them I'm like oh it's not a problem anymore <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. see the computer's like cut off that computer you're just looking at dumb videos oh but look i'm reading a book on how to make a Kite or something—it's like, oh, okay, guess not that bad then for doing for other stuff. Right. So it's more of, and to go off what where I said like, there's a lot of people that they need to. You should just give them the information head out like right out the gate, but I also think it's important to. If if especially youth, because I wish people would have done this when I was young, is that if you have a very burning question about a topic, don't save it for the fourth month in the curriculum because then I might get bored, you know. Uh, If I feel like it's important to have a a period where you can give out information that people want right then and there, right then and there, (laughs) right then and there. If I want to know how to, if I want to know what a processor does in a computer, somebody should be able to tell me that right away, Mm. with no with no problems. Right. Part of the thing is that you can look it up yourself now these days so so what's your advice The advice is to stay relevant as a as an educator it needs to stay relevant because the internet is doing your job. Mm. I can. I always made fun of my teachers at elementary school about basic things because there were things that they were teaching us that I could literally look up and figure it out in five minutes. Yeah. But I feel like you need to have a person there to answer specific questions. And like they were, I said earlier. Like technology is moving quick, so you need somebody that's there with you yeah. that can also be able to answer questions like real time. Yeah. So stay relevant. Don't get your job taken by a robot. It's that, 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 that makes a lot of yeah. sense.
1: And uh, so you're you're. You said a lot there, um, but one is about format and uh, thinking about what learning environments should look like and what the different roles in the room uh, should be, and maybe some do belong to robots. If uh, information retrieval is, is a big part of it, then, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe the humans in the room can pay attention to other things, like yeah. uh, what students need emotionally in that moment or um, you know where where they are specifically having struggles and need to get around a roadblock. So I I love that. I will just end by saying uh, what a pleasure it was to have this conversation. And uh, I know uh, the older you guys get, the more you're going to realize that adults are learners like you are, and uh, these okay. conversations are um, just uh, what it's all about. I have um, when I talk to. Young professionals who are coming into uh, education in all different contexts, occasionally they'll ask, you know, why you do it. It's, it's underpaid work. It's hard work. It's that there is nothing more rewarding than having conversations like this when, especially at a point in the world where things feel uh, discouraging and, uh, you know, just feel, feel tough. You have conversations with young people like you, and you really, it, it is, uh, things are so hopeful. And I thank you guys for spending the time with this. I think it's going to help a lot of educators, and I have no doubt I'm going to bug you guys. Come back and uh, share more <laughs> oh, of your come, ideas. Come back. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks for
2: having me. You're welcome.
1: This podcast was produced in partnership with City University of New York's Master's Program in Youth Studies. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us at mouse.org. Sound assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Fleming. The tracks in the podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, and young person who I once had the pleasure of working with. Find him on SoundCloud at Airtindi Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found
3: linked wherever you.